Hey, whether you enjoy listening to Breaking Down Collapse or Building Up Resilience, I think you'll also really enjoy our bonus content on Patreon. Yeah, Kellen and I take 20 minutes each week to talk about the news that's happening all around us and Collapse as it plays out. We like to have a little fun with it, but also make sure that you're aware of what's going on in the world of Collapse. We look forward to having you join us there. The link to join us on Patreon is in the episode description. Introducing Wondersuite from Bluehost.com. Website creation is hard, but now with Bluehost, you can answer a few simple questions about your business and get a unique WordPress website or store right away. From there, you can customize your design, colors, and content. And Bluehost automatically helps you get found in search engines like Google and Bing. From step-by-step guidance to suggested plugins, Bluehost makes WordPress wonderful for everyone. Go to bluehost.com slash wondersuite. Tired of ads barging into your favorite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free. Or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. This week for the podcast, Kellen and I decided to read a book and review it. We had debated a little bit about which book to read. We had a few on our plate. And in the end, we decided to go with Chris Hedges' America the Farewell Tour. And to be honest, Kellen, I don't think we could really have had, at least when it comes to collapse, a bigger difference in the types of books that we were contemplating reading. Because on one hand, we had Chris Hedges, and on the other hand, we had Joseph Tainter or Jared Diamond, a completely different style, different topics, but both related to collapse. Right. And I'll say that I, I really appreciate that our listeners recommend so much content for us. Uh, we get all sorts of emails and messages where people are saying, hey, check out this YouTube video or check out this book or this blog article. Um, so much has been shared with us and we want to get to it all. But yeah, absolutely. When you talk about Jared Diamond, Joseph Tainter, Chris Hedges, any of these bigger names in the collapse realm, it's amazing how different they all are and how they kind of specialize in different areas. We've mentioned this in the past, but you know, one will focus on like climate change and talk about how that's our biggest threat. And another will kind of ignore climate change and talk about, you know, economic issues. And another will talk about social issues. And I think that's the whole point of us reviewing these kind of books is on this podcast, we're trying to get a full view. We're trying to pull in all of those perspectives. Yeah, good point. And Chris Hedges certainly has, I feel, a different perspective than especially the types of things that we normally talk about on the podcast. For the most part, we are providing empirical data. We're talking about very scientific ideas, hard numbers. Chris Hedges and the way he writes and what he writes about is typically a very different side of collapse, right? He is much more about the social side of things. I would say he talks more about the way that it feels to be in collapse. 
some of the consequences to collapse or causes of collapse that are more along the lines of moral issues, the changes in culture, changes in the way that we communicate, and much less about, you know, numbers or lines on a chart showing at what moment we're going to hit the energy cliff or things of that type of nature. Yeah, and it's not like he's not inserting a lot of numbers because he is, but he might be sharing numbers about racism or about gambling or prostitution or some of these other things. And he's tying it all kind of under the umbrella of capitalism and the issues he sees stemming from capitalism, many of which have strong moral implications. But in his mind, as he sees these things, they're a mark or an indicator of a degraded society. It's interesting because there's a couple of words that I always associate with him, probably because I kind of learned these words from him, but they also, to me, explain the way that he talks about and views things. So one of them is anime. Anime is the lack of the usual social or ethical standards in an individual or group. So highlighting social changes there. And the other is malaise, a general feeling of discomfort, illness, or uneasiness whose exact cause is difficult to identify. So maybe before we talk about the book itself, let's talk a little bit about Chris Hedges and who he is. Because just like what he talks about is different than most in the collapse sphere, his background and where he, where he comes from on the topic is also quite different. So while most of the people that we quote or talk about here on the podcast are academics. He's not. He is a journalist. He was um, a war journalist who worked in the field covering the Gulf War, Yugoslav Wars, the U.S. War in Iraq, and others. Um, he has had money put on his head by Saddam Hussein due to his reporting on him and his atrocities. His team won a Pulitzer Prize. Uh, he received the Amnesty International Global Award for Human Rights Journalism. Right, This isn't just some dude who sits on his butt and talks and expects people to listen like us. Right, We're kind of just nobodies who put together our ideas and, and talk. He's, he's the real deal. He's been through a lot. He's been fired uh, or resigned from different agencies. He worked for the New York Times for a long time. He resigned there because of the things that he talks about, that they ruffle feathers. They don't go with the mainstream points of view. With the Times, um, they were unhappy with a speech he gave in which he expressed that he was against the Iraq war. Um, when he gave that speech, he was actually booed off stage. They cut his mic a few minutes in, all because he didn't support the war at a time when everyone else was all gung-ho about um, the, the military and the need to put an end to the weapons of mass destruction. He eventually ended up at RT America, which is a Russian government-owned network in the U.S. By going there, he was promised freedom to speak his mind uh, and not be punished for it, where not just at New York Times, but other posts he had had, he had gotten in trouble for saying things that didn't go along what his company wanted him to talk about. So RT America had said, you talk about whatever you want, we'll give you freedom to do that. And, you know, when Russia attacked Ukraine, he spoke out against it. He condemned Russia for the attack. And at least for um, the week after that, before RT America was shut down, his bosses didn't say anything about that. 
Um, he says he he may have ended up losing his job for it, but he has always basically spoken his mind. He's not controlled. He doesn't allow himself to be controlled by the people who are paying him. One thing I like about Chris Hedges, um, he's not black and white on topics, right? We tend to see these dichotomies all over the place. You are either this or you are this, right? We try and put people in boxes. But he will speak against Russia, for example, with the war, while at the same time blaming NATO expansion for egging them on. He's not afraid to tell NATO they're in the wrong for what they've done, but also say what Russia has done is a completely inappropriate act of aggression. He's a socialist with super anti-authoritarian views, but he also has strong critiques of groups like Antifa. Here's something that's interesting. He is a Presbyterian minister, but he also speaks extremely critically of most religions, especially the religious right. But he also speaks critically of atheism, at least the new brand of atheism. So that nuanced view I can appreciate in a world where it's really hard to have that. You know, and I think people really respect that, at least people that are familiar with Collapse and are looking for people that are talking about the topic, appreciate that he's willing to say what he believes. You know, he definitely has some very strong political opinions, but from what I read of his work, he's willing to speak out about the things that he sees negatively on both sides of the political spectrum. I think that builds some trust that he's not just following some agenda, he's actually thinking for himself. Yeah, and as a caveat here, we are definitely not condoning everything that Chris Hedges has ever said, you know, or saying that we agree with all of his views. I don't know all of his views. I haven't read all of his works. I'm sure there are likely things that I don't agree with. But, you know, like he says, it's important to respect and be able to get along with and learn from people who don't necessarily view things the exact way that you do. So, I think this is a great opportunity to take things from this book that we felt like we agreed with, maybe talk about some of the things that we didn't. And so with that, the book is called uh, The Farewell Tour, so America, The Farewell Tour. And that title is used not only because he travels around the country visiting different areas impacted by the topics in his chapters and interviewing people who are impacted, sort of doing a tour that way, but also because he's stating that the U.S. is on its farewell tour as a great nation that it's basically got its foot halfway out the door or all the way out. Yeah, I'd say this is definitely an interesting book. There are things that I liked about it and things that I didn't like about it. I'll share my genuine thoughts and feelings. Although I'll mention that as time goes on, I become a little more sensitive to sharing critiques about the works of others, mostly because we've received so much positive feedback about the podcast and we also get people that openly critique the podcast. And I know it can be hard not to take that personally. And I don't know Chris Hedges as a person. You know, maybe at some point we'll interview him on the podcast. Who knows? But anyways, I, I did like the journalistic approach that he took. When I've read other Collapse books, it's very focused on making statements about a topic. But he has gone and interviewed people. And he takes the time to describe the situation that they're in and the context behind it and what they say about it. And so it feels a little bit more engaging that way. He's a very good storyteller. Yeah, for sure. 
I also appreciate that even though he has very strong opinions, he never advocates violence. One of his strong opinions is actually the opposite of that, is to avoid violence. Yeah, and I think that's very admirable. I I mean, I think there are cases in which violence is justified in my mind, but I think it's very rare. I think people come up with a lot of excuses to justify violence, and I appreciate that he's not, you know, trying to rile people up, you know, even though he, he talks about kind of revolutions or revolts trying to change the system in a very dramatic way he always wants to do it in a non-violent way and i really appreciate that a couple of things that i didn't really like about the book um, one of them is that it just didn't really flow it felt scattered apparently that's in part because he kind of grabbed bits and pieces and recycled you know what he had used in other works and pulled them into this book but it made it so that if you're trying to just read it from start to finish, you get a little bit of whiplash from this topic to this topic to this topic. It's hard to know how it really connects and relates to what he's trying to say. Sometimes it even seems like he's contradicting himself. I also think that, at least for my taste, it was a little too political. You know, he's a very strong critic of Trump. And I've been open about my thoughts. I don't think Trump is a good person. But I found that it felt like he was tying everything back to Trump over and over again, instead of talking about the larger issues, which, which of course, he did speak to the issues, but again, always funneling it back to Donald Trump. And I got a little bit tired of that. Yeah, on your first point, I totally agree. I am a very like structured, I learn best when there's a solid framework, you know, a, a good table of contents to go through where I can see exactly how we're going from one idea to the next. And that that did lack here. It didn't build on itself. It was a bunch of different topics and it kind of felt like it was going back and forth between them a lot, which again, I think it's just his style of of writing. And I think another thing about this book that goes to your second point is that he was, it's like he was taking information from some of his older books or ideas and making them relevant to 2017 or 18 when this book was written, which was a time of Trump, right? It was like Trump had just been elected. We were seeing all these just wild things that Trump was doing. Everything was about Trump. And he did sort of try and make it's, it felt like he kind of tried to make his old content new by just putting Trump into it all. And that's not to say that the content wasn't good, but maybe it wasn't necessary to keep going back to that. So with that, maybe let's dive in and look at what some of the chapters, or I'll just read off the title for the chapters uh, of the book. Chapter one was Decay. Chapter two was called Heroin. Chapter three was Work. Chapter four was Sadism. Chapter five was Hate. Chapter six was Gambling. And chapter seven was titled Freedom. Yeah, and just you reading off those chapters, I think, speaks to what we're talking about, where it can feel a little bit scattered. You're like, wait a minute, sadism and heroin and gambling? He, he's definitely calling out major issues in the U.S., but in terms of, like you talked about before, a, a, a clear framework to really paint a full picture, it's hard to identify that here. 
Instead, it feels like kind of just a patchwork of like, hey, here's a problem. And oh, and look over here. Here's another problem. And wait, 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 look this way. Here's another problem. But there's no denying that he's very clear in explaining each of those problems and how dire they are. Yeah, you know, when we do our episodes, we try and make sure that each one is tied to the idea of collapse and give a, a, a simple like, here is this big issue. Here's everything that has to do with that issue. Here's the details, the numbers. And here is how that relates to collapse. Here's the potential problems that it will cause. Here's the problems that it is causing. This is why it will contribute to collapse. And like you said, each chapter, he does a great job of laying out what the issue is. Here is a very specific example of that issue. It makes you feel something, right? It makes you feel grossed out, um, hopeless. It makes you feel for the people who he's interviewing. But then suddenly you're into the next chapter. And I felt like I was just left a little bit saying, okay, you just told me about how epic the heroin problem is. But why are you telling me that that means America is on the way out? I felt like that was lacking a bit in the book. For sure. So as an example um, of some of the stuff that he talks about and how he highlights it. So the first chapter is called Decay. And in the chapter, he highlights Scranton, Pennsylvania, um, which you might recognize the name from The Office. He tours an old textile plant. And by old, I mean completely abandoned. He talks about how the looms and machinery are left in the building. Um, in some cases, it's obvious that they were turned off in the middle of a project and untouched for years. And he talks about how one of the main issues here is that the plants and therefore these jobs left the city, uh, globalization, you know, the ability to find cheaper labor elsewhere, NAFTA, other regulations... And of course, his, his biggest sort of scathing rebuke is of capitalism and late stage capitalism and how it's destroyed this town. Talks about the economic mess that was left behind as the jobs left. And he says the city, which was indebted, started to sell off its services, started to sell off utilities in order to pay back its huge debts, but that the expenses are still higher than their income. So they're going further in debt. Because the jobs have left, tax revenue is down, it's becoming more and more impossible for Scranton to be able to run, to, to keep its infrastructure together. So he poses the question, after the last city assets are sold, what's next? No one has an answer. And his claim is that this type of thing is happening in cities around the nation, hence the name uh, the Rust Belt, for example, for an entire you know previously industrial sector of the United States. And to me personally, I did feel like this first chapter was one of the best. Um, it just did a great job of painting what can happen to a city or to an area during late stage capitalism. And that it is something that we are seeing happen in various different parts throughout the country. And he does give other examples as well as the book goes on. Yeah, like you said, he's a good storyteller and it was very engaging. I wish there would have been a little bit more talk as to like, well, yeah, here's one example but how often is that actually happening like i could give you just as many examples of cities that have boomed and are thriving right and that's not really addressed here if he could have dug as far into scranton as he did and then take five minutes and say here's five other cities where this is happening i'm not going to go into detail to those but here's some numbers for each of them 
And it's projected that over the next 30 years, you know, this will happen in X number of cities more. Some some empirical data, <laughs> you know, I know that's not his his thing, but for me, that's how I sort of can solidify the idea in my mind that this is not only a problem in this one area that he specified very well, but it's going to be like this everywhere else. Yeah, just being able to put it in the broader context would be helpful. Sure. I did like that during this chapter, he did a good job of sharing a few other things that kind of opened my eyes. One of those was one part where he talked about the way kind of these big monopolies and large corporations make their money. And at one point, he mentioned that, you know, the the largest banks in the U.S. had recorded these massive profits. But when you go look at the source of those profits, you find that it's actually essentially equivalent to the amount of government subsidies they get, you know, and some of the breaks that they get on interest rates and things like that. And so it's almost like it's all fake. Like the government is just taking taxpayer dollars and shifting them over to these large banks. And to me, that was very compelling because, you know, very directly through numbers, he was able to show like, they're not actually generating value. They're not actually generating profit. And he used that in other situations to show that like, this is all kind of smoke and mirrors. When we look at all the the great economic growth and things like that that are happening, it's just shifting numbers around. And it's the people, the general population, you know, the lower and, and middle class that are being hurt by that. If you thought the only way to get a more defined jawline with natural-looking results was through surgery, think again. Juvederm Volux XC is a non-surgical injectable gel filler that improves moderate to severe loss of jawline definition and can help you achieve natural-looking results with little downtime. Even better, this improved definition lasts up to one year with optimal treatment. No maintenance required. Improve jawline definition for a smooth, sculpted look with Juvederm Volux XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. Tired of ads barging into your favorite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music. For all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com/newsadfree. That's amazon.com/newsadfree to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. That's the funny thing about capitalism is that it's not actually free trade it's not actually unregulated survival of the fittest it it is lobbied you know government subsidized profits for big banks it, it's 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 not real and you're right i think he did a, a wonderful job of portraying that some of the things that he said i think told the story of catabolic collapse in a, a unique way but he talked about it at one point just briefly in terms of what that means as we see more natural disasters from climate change. 
And this idea that slashing budgets of these organizations that we need the most is really going to cripple us as one of the biggest problems we need to fight is climate change. He gave some examples of, you know, the number of military installations that won't be functional in the future due to like chronic flooding and like nuclear plants that will be out of commission and this kind of long emergency that's going to be ongoing and how we will have to cut budget from other places in order to be able to make up for that. And it becomes this cycle where we just kind of swirl the drain. You know, it's something that John Michael Greer is very good at talking about. Others don't necessarily speak to that concept very much. Chris Hedges did it in a way where he was using specific examples, and I like that. Another thing, you know, I mentioned that I felt like he attacked Donald Trump over and over again, which got a little bit old. But at one point, he made this statement. He said, Trump is not an anomaly. He is the grotesque visage of a collapsed democracy. And it was refreshing for him to talk about it more as like, Trump isn't just the problem. He's more a symptom of the underlying issue. And I think that's more accurate. I think we can see that the issues have continued ever since Trump left office. And although Trump continues to make noise, even if he was totally out of the picture, it's not like all of our problems are fixed. You know, it's Chris Hedges, who we've quoted before, is saying that Donald Trump is sort of the incompetent fascist that, like you described, is a symptom of what's happening in America and with democracy. Chris Hedges' fear, and he didn't talk about this in the book, I've heard him talk about this other places, is the rise of a competent fascist in the White House. And in that way, you know, looking at Trump as a symptom, uh, there is worse to come than Trump, right? And I think that is probably a, a realistic way to look at the future of politics in the U.S. and say, okay, if not Trump, who next? And you could start speculating, right? Right now there's a lot of talk about Ron DeSantis. Who knows if that's what's next for the GOP? But I think the, the important truth is that the circus will not end with Donald Trump. It will continue and will likely only get worse. And I think part of the reason I appreciate that is because my personal belief is that like Republicans and Democrats are both just as much to blame. It's not so much an issue of one party or the other. Although clearly on some issues, you know, one party is doing more damage than the other. But but in general, the problem comes from the way our political system is set up and the polarization that's happening there. So anyways, it's worth noting that he did a good job in that part. Later on, Chris Hedges called out that those that are most responsible for climate change are the fossil fuel industry and the animal agriculture industry. And he didn't mince words there. Like he was, he was very direct in calling those two out. We've done enough research and we've done episodes on those. We, I think it's clear that they are huge contributors to it. He talked at one point about how we can't really use the word liberty in the United States when our government is collecting all of our emails and texts and calls, bank records. If we're under 24-hour surveillance, that doesn't really feel like liberty. So as he was making all of these interesting points about decisions made by political leaders and the corruptness 
of the government and of these corporations. One of these statements that I pulled out that seemed to summarize all of that was him saying that a diseased society rewards the morally bankrupt. That you can tell how healthy a society is based on that one measure. Like a healthy society will rebuke or punish or imprison or isolate or whatever those that do immoral things that hurt one another, that take advantage of each other, that steal from each other. But a dysfunctional society and one that's on its way toward collapse is one that you're actually punished for trying to do good things and you're rewarded when you do these awful things. And I think we've been able to see with so many scandals out there and, you know, it seems constant. Every day I see something new on the news about our political leaders and and awful things that they've been involved in, ways that they're hurting people, ways that these CEOs are, are, are lying and stealing. There's fraud. There's sexual harassment. There's all these things. And it feels like often as they do those things, they're getting further ahead. And I think he makes a brilliant point there. Yeah, it's a really interesting point for sure. Sometimes I have to step back. You know, this is the society that I grew up in. It's everything that I know. And so it's hard sometimes to look at it from a higher level, from 10,000 feet up, and say, oh, it doesn't have to be this way. This isn't the way that it should be. But we're just so used to it happening this way. We're so used to the types of leaders that you've just described being, you know, getting by without punishment or, you know, a slap on the wrist, find some amount of money they don't care about, and then being able to continue on. Meanwhile, there's oppression of people who are striving to do good and spread goodness. And so, yeah, that does seem like the sign of a very sick society. I know some of our listeners are going to listen to this episode and sort of scoff at the idea, again, of morality the idea of morality. I know there's a lot of people out there who don't believe in morality at all, that it's not a question of right versus wrong. But again, we are talking about this book and Chris Hedge's view, and he has a strong view on the idea of morality. And and whether you do believe that something is right or wrong, I think everyone can look at a society where, you know, people are rewarded for hurting each other and see that that's not sustainable right? It's interesting because on that note, he talks about a lot of things that people get involved in that are not considered moral, but he shows a lot of empathy for those people in cases in which it's the system that's kind of forcing them into that position. So he's very strong at rebuking those in power that are making choices that are not aligned with traditional values. But on the other hand, he talks about, for example, impoverished women who are basically forced into prostitution. And and he paints a picture of just how awful and miserable that is and all the harm that that does to themselves and what that does to society while not blaming them for that, instead blaming the oppressive system that we're in. At one point, you know, in fact, an entire chapter, he talked about sadism I told you, Corey, before we started recording, that after going through that chapter, which is very disturbing. Graphic. Yes. uh, At that moment, I just felt like if I had a button 
that I could press that would end all humanity, I probably would have done it <laughs> in that moment. It is just very detailed in all of the awful ways that people are taking advantage of each other and hurting each other. It's it's absolutely sickening. And that's kind of a theme throughout as he talks about these different topics that this greedy capitalist system in, in which all the money's being funneled up to the top is putting the masses at a disadvantage and is causing them to to fall into these very miserable situations. Yeah, and maybe just to um, point out for anyone who doesn't know the definition of sadism, it's the tendency to derive pleasure, especially sexual gratification, from inflicting pain, suffering, or humiliation on others. I consider myself a pretty sex-positive person, right? Not going to judge people for their choices and actions. But in this chapter specifically, he's talking about that pleasure coming from inflicting pain on other people being okay with causing suffering and not just being okay with it, but getting off on it and how that is a, a sign of a sick people. Yeah. He talks at length about racism and all of the awful racist history and, and the tendencies that still exist in our nation. He talks about the opioid epidemic, you know, all of the suicides, all of the overdoses that take place as people get caught up in these drug addictions. He talks about our prison system and how messed up that is and how it's essentially slave labor. Which, by the way, Chris Hedges has spent many years teaching English or teaching writing in prisons. So he spent a lot of time with prisoners in prisons, um, seeing the conditions, interviewing them, learning about what's happening in our prison systems. He's written an entire book, actually, that just came out, I think, last year, maybe the year before, on the prison system in the U.S. Yeah, and I think if I were to try to summarize what he's trying to say in all these chapters as he covers these different topics, is that the middle class is shrinking, and for a huge portion of the population, life is very unfair. And it's unfair because of choices made by those at the top in our heavily capitalist system. Which in a country where you so often hear, you know, pick yourself up by the bootstraps, uh, you've got the American dream, just work harder. He specifically talks about how the the facade of the American dream is just to keep people complacent. If they don't have something, it's because they feel they have not done the work to deserve it and that everyone else that does have, they have done what's necessary to deserve it. One reality, we're in a system that is not just exacerbating that condition, but it's the root cause of it. Yeah, so I think if you are somebody who's been listening to our podcast from the start, you followed all the way through, you've heard everything that we've discussed, this is a good book for you to read because he's covering topics that we haven't really dived into, at least not yet. Like we haven't talked about heroin. We haven't talked about sadism. We haven't talked about gambling. And these are, you know, at least the way that he describes them, symptoms, indicators of a very sick society. And so it's important to understand, I think, based on everything he wrote in this book, he would say it's capitalism's fault. And I personally don't adhere to that. You know, I, I think 
don't get me wrong, there's plenty of problems with capitalism, but I think there's plenty of problems with just about any economic system. I think what it comes down to is, you know, the values that people adopt and whether or not they will actually stick to those. I think if you've got awful people making awful choices at the top of a socialist system, it's going to be terrible for everybody. Same thing with a communist system, same thing with a capitalist system. I mean, even in like a state of anarchy in which there's not much hierarchy, if people are just being awful people doing awful things to one another, it's going to be miserable for everybody. So I don't think it's it's the fact that capitalism is destroying our nation. I think it's all the corruption and greed that has been allowed within our capitalist system that's causing the pain and causing the societal decay. You know, I haven't done enough research on economic systems to give a, a huge opinion on this, right? Kellen and I talk often about how we don't have strong opinions on economic systems. We obviously find so much fault with capitalism. I will say in response to what you just said, Kellen, that I think that capitalism can incentivize that greed. It's a system in which you're, you are given more by being greedy. Other systems, I think, make it harder for that to happen. I mean, obviously, like you're saying, if you're an authoritarian in a socialist system, you can still harness that greed and that power for bad purposes. In capitalism, I do feel like it opens up that greed to everybody and it gives everybody the opportunity to climb that ladder of greed and become the wealthy, right? So anyway, I agree that there can be bad in every economic system and that it requires good people striving to do good to make everything work. But I personally do feel that, that capitalism has a special part in making a place for greed or I guess incentivizing people to become greedy. So maybe to uh, end, I'll read a couple of things here, or just list off a couple of things that Chris Hedges mentions as things that could help start to reverse the direction that we're headed. He doesn't offer these as like a end-all solution to make the world a happy, perfect place. He just says implementing some of these things could slow down the process that we're in, and heal some of that sickness in the nation. So here's a few of them. He talks about unions. He talks about a $15 per hour minimum wage, nationalization of public utilities. He wants to get rid of NAFTA. He talks about paying $500 a week to those unemployed, those with disabilities, the elderly, and even to parents who choose to stay home and raise their kids. So it's kind of almost like a little bit of a UBI type conversation there. Increasing funding for arts and education. And then he talks about um, nuclear proliferation. I find it interesting, and like I mentioned before, that he talks down on groups like Antifa. He does it for them sort of following a sort of militarization and that he says encourages government involvement and repression. So it's kind of like this idea that, yeah, like fascists are bad, but he's saying anti-fascists, think the solution is to go out and fight them and punch them in the face. And by so doing, you're causing violence in the streets. You're trying to fight violence with violence. But really what that's doing is giving the government a reason to come out and oppress and insert their own violence into it all. 
So while he's he's talking down or talking bad on Antifa, but he lauds organizations or organized groups like those that defended Standing Rock. Um, he highlights in, in the book another group that helped build low-income housing to save a neighborhood. So he is for community. He's for community organization. He's for organizing in order to defend what is good and what's right, while at the same time criticizing leftist organizations that go down the, the route of violence. Yeah, it feels like he's able to condemn both Antifa and far-right militias, both under the same principle that he's anti-violence, right? That, that he feels like there's a better way to handle fighting for the right things. Yeah, one thing I really liked that he does talk about is community. He talks about the importance of building community, specifically being able to get along with people who you don't necessarily see eye-to-eye with politically. Um, you know, he mentions that the future is going to require people to work together with the understanding that not everyone can see eye to eye. So in the end, I felt like the book gave a lot of really moving information, really great stories. It talked about a lot of topics that we don't discuss a lot and gives sort of, again, this idea of malaise in the country. Going back to the critique that it's not the way that I learn, right? Chris Hedges doesn't have to write a book the way that I learn. A lot of people probably really like that style and learn really well from how he's written it. For me, yeah, it's not it's not perfectly my style, but I do still feel like I learned quite a bit from the book, and it gave me a perspective on certain things that I didn't have before. I agree completely. I know we like to give our opinions when we review something like this, things that we like, things that we don't like. We can be very critical And yet just gathering all these different perspectives gives me a more well-rounded view. So I appreciated it. I think it's worth a read for anybody who's listening. Tired of ads barging into your favorite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads.